before Beth comes up and reads uh, our scripture passage, just want to make a comment about the passage we're looking at this morning in John chapter 8, 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, you'll notice right above this passage, it says that the earliest manuscripts, it's not in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And just let me make a comment on that. Um, that is true. So what we're going to read uh, is not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, that Scholars of the years have debated where to put it, 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 whether it's in the middle of John, some put it in the end of Luke. Uh, and so a couple thoughts on that. One is, is that this is a, a story that indeed happened, okay? And, uh, and, and so there's, there's, there's a record of it and a manuscript of it that, that it did happen. Um, the other is that what you'll see in this story, there's nothing in it that contradicts any other part of Scripture um, around forgiveness um, and around no condemnation. And so with that background, and I want to explain that so that if you're reading that title above it, gives a little bit of background as to why we're going to work through this story and uh, glean from it just the wisdom that God has in it for us. And then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. We live in a world that doesn't quite know what to do when people get caught in sin. Uh, Film producer Harvey Weinstein is being accused now of decades of sexual misconduct. Lawsuits are coming out against him. Uh, actor Kevin Spacey is being accused now of decades of sexual assault, uh, mainly on minors. You've got the uh, USA Gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser, who has been accused now of a growing number of U.S. gymnasts who over the decades uh, were, were sexually abused by him, and they're coming out and telling their stories, many of them calling him a monster. So we live in this world that doesn't quite know what to do when someone's caught in their sin and exposed. But it's actually not just in the world. We live in the church, and many times in the church, we don't quite know what to do when someone's caught in sin. Uh, Lifeway Research, they did a study recently 
that showed that women with unplanned pregnancies silently go from the church to abortion clinics because they believe that the church would only know how to gossip about it rather than help with it. And there were some shocking statistics that came out of this study. Let me read a few to you. They found that more than four in 10 women who have had an abortion were churchgoers when they ended a pregnancy. But only 7% of women discussed their abortion decision with anyone at the church. Three-fourths, 76%, say the church had no influence on their decision to terminate a pregnancy. And then among those who had an abortion, two-thirds say church members judge single women who are pregnant. Only 38% of women who have had an abortion consider church a safe place to discuss pregnancy options, including parenting, abortion, and adoption. I had a, a conversation with a friend yesterday that described a, a, a someone who was caught in sin. And literally, it was the type of thing where the church was almost paralyzed. They didn't quite know what to do with it. And here we have a passage where a woman gets caught in sin, and yet we see Jesus handle it. He's going to answer the question for us, how do you deal with exposed sin? And to answer this, we're going to look at the inclusiveness of exposure, the shame of exposure, and the grace of exposure. So let's start with the inclusiveness of exposure. Now, what do I mean by this? We can get really exclusive in our categorization of sin. Very exclusive in how we categorize sin. Where we name it, we create a category for it. And this story is case in point. Right At front and center of this story is a woman who's caught in adultery. And yet, there is so much more sin that is prevalent and pervasive in this story that we're going to see. Now, let's, let's start with the woman. She gets caught in adultery. Says in verse 5, according to the law of Moses, that she should get stoned. Now, where does that come from? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 to 23 I say that a man and woman who commit adultery should die. Then verse 23 says that if a betrothed virgin, in other words, an engaged woman, has sex with another man, not her fiance, that they should be stoned to death. So by nature of, of the accusation right, coming and, and the prescription from the, these Pharisees and scribes being stoning, we can assume that this woman was betrothed or she was engaged. Right? Her, her sin is front and center. This is act one of the story. And in act one of the story, you have an exposed sinner, the woman, in the midst of a crowd of self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus doesn't let the story end there because there's more sin to this story. And it's not just the woman's adultery. And so he presses in. So we move to the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse three. It says that the Pharisees and scribes brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, why is that significant? Why is it significant that this woman was caught in the act? Well, 
the law at the time said that to, to accuse someone of adultery, you had to have two witnesses, and they had to have seen this couple in a sexual context. Now, the reason that the law prescribed this is they didn't want suspicious husbands right, accusing their wives unnecessarily. And so you had to have two witnesses who saw this couple in a sexual context. Now, you can imagine to actually get evidence, you almost had to set a trap. And so that's what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees do. They bring this woman. Whether they set a trap or not, we don't know, but they obviously had staked this out and were prepared to be able to take this woman before Jesus. And it says in verse six, see, because they catch her and they're using her, but what are they using her for? Verse six. This they said to test Jesus that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're testing Jesus. And you see where they're putting him, right? If he disavows the law of Moses, his credibility is undermined. If he follows through with the law of Moses, he ends up doing something that was actually very unpopular in the day. And, this was a, and it was rarely carried out in public, this stoning. On top of that, it, it would seem to go against Jesus' compassion, right? That he exhibited towards the sinners and to the broken of the day, right? So they're putting him, they're putting him in a squeeze, and they're trying to trap him. And what's interesting here is that the scribes and the Pharisees, who were sticklers to the law, they knew the law of Moses inside and out, back and forth, up and down. They knew it to a T, and they absolutely nailed it here on the act of adultery, didn't they? She was guilty. Verse 5, they prescribed what the law said. But what is so ironic is that while they adhered to that part of the law, they broke the law in several places in this story. Let me give them to you. First, the law of Moses also expected that if someone was about to sin, that compassion would kick in. And in compassion, you were called to lead that person away from sin. And now here they are, right, silently waiting, wanting this woman to commit adultery so that they could drag her out in front of Jesus. Right? So they failed the law in that realm, not leading her away, but wanting her. And even if they set a trap, we don't know, but it's clear that they were silently waiting for her. The second way that they break the law of Moses is in Deuteronomy 22. It, it required both the man and the woman who are caught in adultery to be stoned to death. Well, look what happens here. They caught this man and woman in adultery, and who gets drug out? The woman. You say, where's the man? Right? They just let him go. You see what they're doing? They're picking and choosing what part of the law they want to adhere to and what part they don't want to. It's exactly what Jesus called them out on in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice. They were unjust. They pulled the woman out and they let the man go clean. The weightier matters, justice and mercy, compassion. The law said if you see someone going into sin, you're in compassion required to move them away. Justice and mercy and faithfulness 
Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So they have just picked and, and chosen what part of the law that they're gonna adhere to. Now, how does Jesus call them out on their self-righteousness? Look at verse seven. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's not saying you have to be sinlessly perfect to make an accusation, then nobody could ever bring an accusation. That's not what he's saying here. No, it's a direct reference to Deuteronomy 17.7, which says, if you catch someone in a crime, the, the person that witnessed the crime are the first to throw the stones, and they can only do it if they haven't participated in the crime. In other words, Jesus is saying, you must not be guilty of this sin if you're going to throw a stone. Now, by nature of them walking away, what's that say? Right? That they themselves are guilty of sexual immorality. And so you have the scribes and Pharisees who come into this situation, law-abiding, adhering to the law, who get outed on a number of fronts for their sin. Not only lack of compassion to lead this woman away from the sin of adultery, but picking and choosing what part of the law they're going to take seriously, let the man walk clean, drag the woman out, and then on top of that, sexual morality. That Jesus is calling out the double standard. He's calling out their hypocrisy. And so look what happens here. It's, it's amazing. Act one of the story, you have what? One exposed sinner, the woman. You have a crowd of self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. In act two, what do you have? A crowd of exposed sinners, the woman, the scribes, the Pharisees, and one righteous person, and that is Jesus Christ, right? That what Jesus is doing here is leveling the playing field. He's calling sin, sin, right? There's no, there's no categories of sin, which we typically do, don't we? We create these categories that create playing fields, right? And, and we get on a playing field so that we create that category so that we can look down and feel superior to someone who's on a lesser playing field because their sin's in a different category. That's all that self-righteousness is. It's creating categories of sin that we can look down our nose and judge someone. And Jesus speaks out against this in the clearest of terms in Matthew chapter seven. Listen to what he says. Over and over in the gospels, Jesus blows up these categories. He blows up the, the, the playing fields to level them and call sin, sin. In Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, listen to what he says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What does this mean? It means this, before you judge someone, you need to do self-examination. Before you judge someone's homosexuality, you need to judge your own sexual immorality. Before you judge someone's lying, you need to judge your own truth spinning and truth withholding for selfish gain. Uh, before you judge someone's greed and materialism, 
You need to judge your own hoarding problem and lack of generosity. Before you judge someone's narcissism, you need to judge your own selfish manipulation. Right? The point is, is that there's an inclusiveness to exposure, that sin is sin, and that we all need to be exposed. And that exposure is a, is a, a wide, wide net that captures all of us. So how do you deal with exposed sin? First, recognize the inclusiveness of it, that we're all in the same boat. And then second, the shame of exposure. The shame of exposure. You know, the the public humiliation of this woman in this story is palpable. She was caught in the act of adultery which means she was drugged out of the bedroom, probably with some sort of cover over her and ripped in front of the crowds before Jesus. Left with questions in her mind, probably, what am I gonna tell my fiance? (laughs) Who I just cheated on. Am I gonna make it alive out of this crowd? Right, she's on the the, the six o'clock news, the front page of the newspaper, It's gone viral on social media. That's the equivalent of what's happened here. She is publicly humiliated and embarrassed. But it's not just her. Look what happens to the scribes and Pharisees. You know, they show up with this woman in complete control. They're in control of the situation. Their intent is to come and shame Jesus. And they're the ones that actually walk away ashamed. They come as the ones that are sticklers to the law, adherents of the law, and they walk away embarrassed and shamed. You see, everyone in this story, minus Jesus, are left in shame. Question is now, what is shame? What exactly is shame? It's fear of exposure. That's what shame is. It's it's fear of exposure. Now, where does it come from? There are two striking phrases in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis that capture this. At the end of Genesis 2, after God creates the world, he creates Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden before sin has ever touched God's world. At the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, it says this, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what does that mean? Naked and unashamed means, and it's, it's driving us towards how we're wired, how we're designed. And that is to be known, to be transparent, to be vulnerable. There's nothing to hide. That's what it means. And that's how Adam and Eve, our original parents, were created. Then you get, not too much later in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world and God goes to the garden to meet with Adam and Eve. And listen to what Adam says. He says, I heard you, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. First time you see fear in God's creation. I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, what has changed and what hasn't changed? Naked before the fall? Naked after the fall. What has changed is no shame 
to shame. No hiding to hiding. That's what changes. And what we see here is that hiding is the natural result of shame. That hiding is what we do because of our shame. Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, says it this way. We are maximally creative. And he's speaking of the Genesis 2 to Genesis 3 reality, right, in creation. We are maximally creative when we are simultaneously maximally vulnerable and intimately connected. And evil knows this. To twist goodness into the seven deadliest versions of its opposite, shame is necessary and effective. And its harmfulness explicitly exploits our vulnerability. You see, the idea of vulnerability, of no hiding, brings with it the hope of liberation, but also the terror, the terror of possible rejection. That's what vulnerability, the no hiding brings, those two realities. And it's because of the terror of rejection. If somebody really knew me, would they really want to be with me? If someone really knew me, would they really want to love me and be around me? Right? It's that terror of rejection around hiding. And it's that that keeps us in hiding, that keeps us in shame. Covenant Eyes, it's a Christian company that sells internet accountability software. They receive thousands upon thousands of emails from people who are struggling with viewing online pornography. And I just want to read you a couple of these anonymous emails that, that have been sent to Covenant Eyes to frame this picture of shame and of hiding. Listen to this. Heartfelt cries for deliverance and help. A teenager wrote, I really need help breaking my porn addiction. And I don't want to waste my teen years and the rest of my life with the gigantic secret. Please keep me in your prayers. Another wrote this, please pray for me. My porn addiction is killing me. I just can't give up. I try to stop, but then I keep failing all the time. I wish I would just die because I hate myself so much. Only Jesus can save me, but I feel so alone and depressed. Another wrote this. I have been battling with porn addiction for years now. I feel so incredibly distant from God. Often I sit and I try to focus on him when I'm tempted, but it's almost like I can actually hear my inner heart saying, reject him. I hate this. It's the most horrible feeling ever, and it's affecting my whole life with God. I lead an evangelism ministry at a university, and I fear it's affecting that too. And then here's the last one. I don't want to live with this dirty secret anymore. It is ruining my relationships with people in life. I just want to break free. You feel the tension in those comments? I'm so incredibly ashamed. And I want to come out of hiding. But then you see in these emails, these anonymous emails, that all they can muster up to come out of hiding is to send an anonymous email. Now, you can run any sin through that grid, not just pornography, 
or sexual sin, any sin through that grid that we have in our, 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 our sinfulness, this desire to hide, this fear of exposure, we believe that the worst possible thing that could happen to us is to be exposed. That life would come to an end if we were exposed for this sin that we have kept a secret that only we know about. And yet the gospel paints an absolutely different picture on exposure. You know, those who are unwilling to expose sin can become very dangerous people. Let me give you the example. The scribes and the Pharisees in the gospels. The Pharisees' unwillingness to be exposed made them very dangerous to humanity. And we see that in the Gospels. And so Jesus is committed to not letting this happen, which is why we see in this story that everyone's exposed by the end of it. So if we want to run from it and we see exposure as the worst possible thing that could happen to us, and Jesus says, no, 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 I have a very different view of it. What is that view? And this brings us to the third point. How do you deal with exposed sin? So you've got the inclusiveness of exposure. Sin is sin. There's no categories. We're all in it together and need to be exposed. The shame of exposure, our shame that forces us, that moves us into hiding, right? Where we want to be in isolation and we don't want to share. And then we come to this third point, which is the grace of exposure. And now we've come to act three of the story. So remember, act one, one exposed sinner, the woman, in a crowd of self-righteous Pharisees. Act two, a crowd of exposed sinners in the midst of the one who is righteous, Jesus. And now act three is this one exposed sinner, the woman, alone with the only one who is righteous, Jesus. And why is that important? Because Jesus has the only, he's the only one that has the moral authority to condemn this woman. Jesus has, is the only one who has the moral authority to condemn the woman and to call out the Pharisees. And what does he do? Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, Jesus, by his words, is not implying her innocence. Not at all. What he's displaying is his sovereignty to forgive sin. And so in his sovereignty, he says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. That there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, as we read in Romans. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. So not just confess it to God, but confess to one another and pray for, another one, pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. See, what is confession? Confession is just coming out of hiding. Confession is, is returning to the state of Genesis 2, naked and unashamed. Because post-sin, it drove us into naked and ashamed, which ran us into hiding. And confession is to say, I'm coming out of hiding. I'm coming out of hiding because there's a safe place to run, and that is into the arms of Jesus Christ. You see, the reason we don't come out of hiding because there's not a safe place. 
And what we see in this story with the way that Jesus treats this woman is that there is a safe place for you to run with the sin that you may think is unforgivable or the sin that you think is so bad that you, you can't ever tell anyone, let alone God or Jesus. There's a safe place to go into the arms of Jesus. We sing it, into the arms of my dear Savior. Jesus says, come to me. Come out of hiding. But don't just come to me out of hiding. Come to one another out of hiding. Come to one another out of hiding. In the loving presence of Christ, shame has no oxygen to breathe. Let me say that again. In the loving presence of Christ, shame has no oxygen to breathe. 1983, Carla Faye Tucker, she was 23, 23 years old at the time, along with her boyfriend, Daniel Garrett, they broke into a Houston home, casing the home out for robbery. They had been strung out on drugs for days. They run into a couple in the home and they murder them with a hammer and a pickaxe. More than 20 stab wounds in each body. Both Carla Faye Tucker and Daniel Garrett, they get sentenced to prison and they're given the death sentence. And Daniel Garrett died in prison in 1993, but Carla Faye spent in many, many years, 14 years on death row. Three months into prison, she became a Christian. She comes to Christ because uh, a ministry team of some sort sent a, a, a team to her cell block to do a puppet ministry where they presented the gospel. She heard the gospel. She grabbed one of the Bibles that was there, stashed it away in her cell, and that night she surrendered her life to Christ, meaning she believed that the horrendous, horrific act that she had committed, that in her mind probably she thought was unforgivable, was forgivable in Christ. She believed Jesus. She trusted him. And then this is what she wrote on the other side of it, looking back on that experience, that night in prison, and that experience when the gospel was presented. She says this, when I did this, meaning when she surrendered to Christ and believed Christ, the full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. I realized for the first time that night what I had done. I began crying that night for the first time in many years. And to this day, tears are a part of my life. For over 14 years from 1983 to 1998 when she died by lethal injection, she was a, a, a witness for Christ in that prison. In fact, in 1995, she married the prison chaplain, Dana Brown. And then in 1998, she was put to death. Weeks before her execution, and if you were alive at that time, it was all over the media. Weeks before her execution, Larry King, interviewed her on CNN. And he was convinced this was just one of those jailhouse conversions, right? Deathbed confession. And what he noticed in her as she was approaching her, her execution, that, that there was this just positive attitude and he couldn't figure it out. So, she, so he asked her in this interview, are you still up? You have to explain that to me a little more. It can't just be God. And this is what she said. Simply, yes, it can. It's called the joy of the Lord. You see, here was a woman 
who experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for a horrific sin. And yet she received the forgiveness of Christ and had a joy about her because of that and a humility and a gratitude that Jesus had paid the penalty for that sin and all of her sin. See, the grace of exposure, the grace of getting caught, we think exposure is the worst possible thing that can happen to us. And Jesus says, no, it's the best possible thing that can happen to you. Because exposure is what leads to healing. Exposure is what brings you out of hiding and into the marvelous grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ where true and full joy is found. Exposure is a, is a gift it's the only way you'll experience the comfort and joy of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. In the loving presence of Christ, shame has no oxygen to breathe. Now Jesus finishes this story by saying to the woman, go and sin no more. <laughs> go and sin no more, he says to her. Forgiveness and grace always leads to repentance and obedience. You see, what, when he says to this woman, go and sin no more, what is he saying? He's saying, you've come out of hiding. You were brought out of hiding. I don't want you going back there. Go and sin no more means go and love me and love others. You realize that the two greatest commandments that Jesus himself says are love God and love others and that all the rest hang on it. And here's why. In this story, it is a picture of self-love. You've got every character in this story loving self at the expense of others, right? Look at the woman. She is loving herself. She's getting her, her needs met by at the expense of this man who she committed adultery with, at the expense of her fiance. You've got the Pharisees and scribes that are loving themselves, their reputation, their power, their position by what? Using this woman and actually trying to use Jesus. <laughs> go and sin no more means go and love God and love others with a love that only comes into your heart when you come out of hiding, when you're exposed and you receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, in my loving presence, shame has no oxygen to breathe. But guess what? In the loving presence of Christ, selfless love has ample oxygen to breathe. And so Jesus says, come out of hiding. Let me set you free. Let me forgive you so that you can love me and love others. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room is hiding to some degree. And we know that because we see the hiding begin in Genesis 3. That our shame drives us into hiding and we fear exposure. We think it's the worst thing that could happen, and yet, Jesus, we hear you loud and clear in this passage, saying that exposure is one of the greatest things that can happen to us.
And so we pray that you would take us out of hiding. Father, I pray specifically for those in this room that maybe are living with a secret they've been living with forever. And they're, they're scared to death to come out of hiding. That Jesus, you would convince them by your Holy Spirit that you are a safe place to come that you're a safe place and that your body, your people are a safe place. And I pray, Father, as we launched at the beginning of this sermon, that this would not be a body of Christ, a community of people that would be judgmental, that we would be as an extension of Christ's mercy and grace, a safe place to come, that we would be safe places to each other to come out of hiding, to come into the light and to experience the joy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ individually and corporately as a people. Father, as we close in worship, we sing and we have hope and we come out of hiding and we receive your your mercy and forgiveness because you have risen from the dead. That you're alive, you're at the right hand of the Father. And so we worship you and we run freely to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.